Podcast. My name is Chad Durham. I'm Jacob Hampton. And we are minus Eric Wood, uh, who's working on a master, so he's busy, man. Um, and uh, today uh, we're talking about our five favorite literary adaptations. When we say literary, we mean, uh, generally speaking, novels. So neither Jake nor I included any plays. Uh, I thought if you open the Shakespeare can, it's just a oh, whole yeah. different, it's just a whole different, it's a whole different thing. So we're talking uh, generally about novels. I I have, of my five, two we could quibble a little bit, okay. but I think I think I think we'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, when we when we did this, we are talking about movies that are based on books, and we have read the books. Um, I don't know. I I can't remember, Jake. Uh, I should because I I know we've talked about it probably multiple times before, but. Do you talk at all about adaptation in your film lit class that you teach or any of them? Or no? I actually do more in English. Um, oh, nice. With more than just book to movie, but uh, using that as the jumping point because that's what you know yeah. people and are most familiar with when it comes to adapting stories. Um, but yeah, I touch on it. And so um, I will be uh, using some stuff, I've, or yeah, naming yeah. some uh, books to movies I've used in class because awesome. I think they're good adaptations. Um and yeah, and this will be fun because I think we're very familiar um, overall with what each other have seen, but I'm not with this qualification of we have to have yeah. read the book as uh-huh. well. Uh, I don't know as much uh, of what you've read, so yeah. there might be more surprises. Yeah, probably not. Um, okay. <laughs> and, and I was just going to say, yeah, my first semester of Film Lit is about adaptation, and we talk a lot about what makes a good adaptation to the point that I had written an example essay for them about what makes a good adaptation. And they had to do, since it's this English class and it's, no offense, but it's a lot of slackers take it because they don't want to take normal English. Mm-hmm. So they have to write a claim. And I literally pulled my claim out of where I put like, it does this, it does that, and it does this. That's what I'm looking for. And and what Jake just said, I want to make sure to say right off the bat, is there were a lot of just missed that w- w- might be surprising. That you might be like, oh, cool. Like, maybe, oh, I haven't read that. Or, or you know, or, or, you yeah. know, or you might be like, oh, maybe we'll hear about that later or whatever. But my top five... Man, I wish there were more surprises. Okay. And I almost put a couple in, but it was that same thing where I was like, ah, I don't want to lie though. I really feel like it's these that I I feel I feel strongly about, you know. Um, so yeah, we're we're partially judging off of the efficacy of bringing these to the screen by the writers and directors and actors and actresses that that, you know, inhabit. Um, so uh, just a, as a quick kind of this precludes things for me like social network which I personally have not read, The Accidental Billionaires, Children of Men, and Little Women, stuff like that. I haven't read those books. And so like these incredible movies were completely taken off the table for right. me because I haven't, I haven't read the source material, sadly. Um, so, Jake, what makes a good adaptation oh, for you? What, what are the things you look for? You read this book or, or this novel or, or whatever, and you go and see the movie, what are the things to you that really say like yes, solid adaptation? I you you did the thing I was looking for. Well, you had such good things written in the notes that I didn't want to like. I don't want to take too much credit for the stuff you came oh, up please, with because I agree please. with it all. Um, but I want to emphasize more than anything else that I, when I think of a, what makes for a good adaptation, um, I do not think how exact is it to the events um, 
you know, beat by beat in the book, which I think can be easy to do, right? You'll be like, well, how close was it to the book? Then was it a good movie or not? Um, but I think there uh, is there are so many adaptations out there that run with the basic premise of the book or, um, you know, the main story, but they have these other ideas in mind and they incorporate these other things you're not expecting that make the movie feel fresh, even if you have read the book. Um, and so I just really love it when an adaptation can take, you know, the essence or uh, as you put in the notes, the themes, right? Make sure you're representing the same themes here, but how can we make this more interesting or, um, you know, fun or whatever story for the visual medium of film, as opposed to being able to read a novel where you're in people's thoughts and uh, getting more detail um, yeah. on those kind of things. Yeah, and I, I, I've actually, in most of my life, generally speaking, shied away from adaptations that have narration. Mm. Even though, <laughs> like, my number one has narration, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, I feel like it's a crutch. Yeah. And then in my film lit class, the, the, the adaptation version, I, man, I try to hammer into them. Like, I try very hard to be like, what are you thinking stuff? But one of the things I try so hard to help them understand is like, please stop saying, oh, they changed this, so I don't like it. Yeah. Read the book when you want to read the book. The movie's a different thing. Like right. It's a whole different entity. And we talk all the time in the class. I'm like, if you brought most novels to the screen and didn't cut anything, they'd be 14 hours long. And the kids will tell me, like, I'd watch it. Like, no, you wouldn't. You can barely, uh, you can barely keep my attention for two hours mm -hmm. with your phone. Um, so, yeah, that, that one that you said, and no, please, that, like, I love that we're on the same page about that idea. Is just like, no, I'm looking for at least something new even not just freshness and not just visual which i love i love when they use the cinematic medium to bring alive something mm -hmm. that was in words like oh man that's incredible and my number one does that like it, with in such exquisite ways i think but i want to see something new not that you have to change the plot or add story per se but i want to see your personal spin on this other thing because the author already did the thing yeah he he or she did the thing and that thing's in print and will never change you read it. You're interpreting it. I want to see some of that interpretation, yeah, interpretation. on the screen, right? I want to see some of that interpretation. The kids in my class will say, like, oh, that's not the way I envisioned it. Like, oh, my gosh. They're not in your head. They're in their heads. <laughs> yeah. And we're seeing their head's version. You know yeah. what I mean? If a character has a different color hair, why in the world would I care? Right. You know what I mean? I know some people do. Like, it says she has brown hair. Why does she have blonde hair? Like, who cares? <laughs> yeah. Let's watch the story unfold. Um, and then, uh, yeah, be true to the themes. And of course, use the elements of film. You, you touched on all the things. Um, because it is a film. And that's, that's part of the reason, like, just to bring up uh, some adaptations that I didn't love uh, that I've talked about before. Oh, yeah, that's good. Harry Potter 1 and 2. Oof. Uh, and I like the Harry Potter books, generally speaking. I know right now we've got some J.K. Rowling things going on, and I'm not, we're just talking about the books right now. Um, but uh, they're too faithful. And yeah. they're too uncinematic for me. And oh, I like yeah. Chris Colum Christopher Columbus, Chris Columbus, I mean, he's a fine guy. Um, I think he directed both the first two. But it seemed like he was intent on bringing, like, the book on tape. Right, to, exactly. To the screen. Those like, two movies, no. they feel like, yeah, they feel like books in a bad way. Where it's like, yeah. we're doing each chapter and yeah. the event that happens in that uh -huh. chapter without the consideration like, for... let's just have Daniel Radcliffe read the friggin' story exactly. to us mm -hmm. on, on screen. Mm -hmm. That's all we needed, you know what I mean? Um... And then if, like, I, and I've never seen Aragon, guys. I've never read the book. But it's one that my kid, my students just abhor. 
if you're gonna completely wholesale change, yeah, I guess that's probably like it's, just call it something else. If it's not, if you're not adapting it anymore, yeah, that's probably you could probably just ditch the name and <laughs> you know change things up. Anyway, um, yeah, I think that's it. Like we can jump right in. Probably let's do it. Um, what adaptations didn't make your list? That, didn't make that my were list. Under consideration that you felt like were very good adaptations but didn't quite make the cut. As always, I have a bunch, but I want, I'll I have, have you go first. I have five, so basically, you know, a, a ten, but we're only going to go in detail on the fi- top yeah, five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I mean, I, I was just talking to Eric about that, how mm-hmm. ten probably would have made me feel a little more... <sighs> okay. Because with the five, I felt like I cut off five that were incredibly good. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I'll name those. I'll name them. You'll name them. So uh, I will shout out uh, Greta Gerwig's Little Women. I considered it... Um, I haven't seen every movie adaptation of Little Women, but um, of course I've read the book. Uh, that's why I'm mentioning it. And uh, <laughs> I just really, I thought the time jump thing she did um, was just really unique and helped tell yeah. that story in a fresh way when it's like, yeah. it's Little Women. It's been done over and over, right? For sure. Um, I, another one, It. Um, I guess chapter one specifically, but I, I thought chapter two is better than a lot of people um, thought. But I, for adapting... Considering they were adapting such a gigantic novel, um, I thought uh, the first it especially really uh, translated the tone and kind of feel of of the Stephen King classic um, really well onto the screen. Uh, <clears throat> one I considered, I don't even I don't super love the movie, but just I'm glad that it got made in the mainstream way that it was, um, and that's Love Simon, uh, oh, nice. the adaptation of Simon versus the Homo Sapiens agenda. Uh, got across the themes of the book and it's just a nice like solid and decent teen uh rom-com high school comedy way Um, i think i think i remember us specifically you talking about how it was just good that that movie was being made if i recall correctly because i think we talked about it uh, on an old episode uh after we had seen it not not together but after we'd each seen it um how it's the first step hopefully making just a pretty straightforward romantic comedy yeah um about uh, you know a, a a gay boy um will lead to and there are a lot of nuanced portrayals but will lead to more mainstream dramatic stuff that can yeah do a, do a little more but the nice thing about love simon is it's just, it's a pretty straightforward rom-com exactly yeah. straightforward and and was and yeah mainstream exactly yeah, yeah it's, it. it's and it's well made um it is uh hunger games catching fire specifically that's my favorite out of all those movie adaptations i just think uh, extra good um at bringing the action from that book onto the screen it's quick it, it moves uh super smoothly throughout the, the story um love Ma- that one but for me mockingjay part one i thought that movie was so good i know it's a weird thing to say no i like that one a lot too. i i just was like because i really liked i like mockingjay more than a lot of people the book mm-hmm. and it's i didn't put it on here but I, when you brought it up like when i watched the first mockingjay i was kind of to use blown away is too strong but i was Im- really impressed with them kind of handling the darkness in a in an interesting way. Yeah. Uh, no, shout out tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think overall that whole series. Yeah, it's not bad. As far as series that like movie, yeah. book series to movie franchise adaptations go, it's pretty solid from yeah. start to finish. Yeah, I would yeah. say. Uh, Gone Girl, had nice. to put it on yeah. here. Um, just the way that David Fincher's uh, interpretation of it, I think, like blew up that. Uh, burgeoning subgenre even more you know the gone girl thriller um i know that was already like it was already happening in books and but i think david fincher just like was like here's how you can take this really you know 
soapy, um, kind of pulpy type book and turn it into this uh, a, a David Fincher movie, you know? Yeah. And uh, I think it made everyone clamor even more to be the next Gone Girl author, and there are so many out there. Um, <laughs> but I, I, just for its influence and how stylish and amazing I think that movie is on screen. Gotta nice. mention Gone Girl. Yeah, yeah. Nice, thank you. Um, here are some that didn't make it. I won't say as much, and then I'll, I'll say a little bit more about the, the five biggest cuts. But Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, uh, which I think is a really strong adaptation of a, an interesting story. Casino Royale, which I read uh, some years after I saw Casino Royale and thought, like, it's a really, really smart adaptation. Uh, Martin, oh, I can't remember his name. He hasn't done a lot lately. Uh, that's stupid of me. But he's the director. Million Dollar Baby, which is technically an adaptation of a couple short stories. Part of the reason I didn't have it on. Um, but again, there's a grit to the stories um, that they brought to the screen really well. The Silver Linings Playbook, um, which has a lot of different events. They changed uh, the events. I need to read that one. It's good. I think you'd enjoy it, especially... I, I know you and, yeah. you and Jake really like the movie. And it's a good movie. We own it. I like the movie a lot. Um, but there's a voice that Matthew Quick brings across as a writer that they adapted really well to the movie. The Prestige, um, which is really changed at the end. But again, which uh, Christopher Nolan, I think he adapted it, right? I'm pretty sure Nolan adapted it. Jonathan? By himself, though? Probably together. I think together. But they did a really cool thing. They added a lot of, like, stylistic things and these letters back and forth and... um, and really captured the the essence of the prestige. And then Friday Night Lights, um, which is a, a good movie. The reason Friday Night Lights didn't end up on my list is because the, the TV show is, I love it so much, it overshadows the movie. The five that would have been in no order, 10 to six, but not in order here. Moneyball, which is an exquisite adaptation because the book doesn't feel like it should be a movie at all. It's full of stats and it's full of, and what, what Aaron Sorkin did, you've heard me talk about a lot. Fantastic Mr. Fox, which Wes Anderson adapted with such flair and style. Is that like um, a novel or is it like a yeah. picture book? Okay. Raul Dahl. No, it's an... Oh, I it's mean, Raul Dahl? I didn't even know Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Okay. It's like, it's not a picture book. It, it is a novel, right? But, but not the Raul same Dahl. length. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory mm-hmm. type of thing. Um, but Wes Anderson brought this grown-up sensibility to it, but not in a way that's adult. Um, and of course, the animation just really captures the spirit of what Raul Dahl was doing. Arrival, which was technically a short story, but... Um, how they adapted it like it's a lot more in the movie but it still keeps the framework but then hides some things that you knew in the book kind of early oh it's a it's a really it's a it's a um what's the word i'm looking for uh i can't think of the right word so i'm not going to say it but uh it's an apt adaptation i guess is what i wanted it's not what i wanted to say (laughs) apocalypse now (laughs) an adaptation of heart of darkness um which i just you know saw apocalypse now um, but a totally, you know, transplants the events to a totally different time, but, uh, at the heart of the themes, that's what okay. so works so well about Apocalypse Now coming from Heart of Darkness is taking Joseph Conrad's themes and, uh, in a way where you can watch it, it's very recognizable as Heart of Darkness and yet a totally different thing. And then the final cut for me was A Little Princess, which is super hard for me to cut. Um, I'm such a big Alfonso Cuaron fan. Uh, Emmanuel Lubezki. Um, the script actually changes a really significant, a really significant thing from the book. But both of them make me cry. The book made me cry. The movie makes me cry. Um, and there's a sense of artistry to what Afonso Cuaron does as an adapter. 
Um, not that he's always the writer, but just in bringing these things to the screen. And, and The Little Princess is just so charming and moving and, and everything. And, and taking Frances Hodgson, Hodgson Burnett's um, nice prose and, and um, what's a, a time-specific story about this father and daughter and about this, this girl who kind of finds this new life and bringing it alive in such a cinematic way is... That was a hard one for me to cut, especially when you see what's on here because, I mean, there's a reason for all of them, but these are some pretty exquisite movies that I cut. <laughs> Apocalypse Now, Little Princess Arrival, and Moneyball yeah. are, are, are uh, impressive, impressive uh, cinematic achievements. So, yeah, those are the ones that didn't make it. Okay. Let's go. The actual list now. Let's do it. Five to one. Five? You, yeah, you go. Uh, okay. You named my five as one that you cut. My oh, number nice. five is The Prestige. Oh, yay! Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. Tell I, me more. Tell me more. <laughs> I'd forgotten that you've read it. I um, have. Yeah, we got it from my father for a birthday or Father's Day years ago. Okay. And after he read it, I read it nice. and was like, "Oh, cool." I I didn't know when I saw the movie that it was an adaptation when I first saw it. Same. Yeah. Uh, and and Christopher you know, Priest, I think, right? Christopher Priest, the yeah. Writer. Um, and so the the movie uh jumps in time so much and the um, book does not as exactly. i recall so yeah. i saw the movie um you know in junior high or high school or whatever and was like whoa that's crazy um blew my mind you know the twist the turns and then <laughs> found out it, it was based on a book and was like i have to read that book and also i had been so blown away and impressed by the like complex timeline of the story that i was like man how'd they come up with this oh they got it from a book and then i read the book and it doesn't jump it's I, it just tells the story twice basically once from uh, one perspective and then again from start to finish from another perspective uh, so still hats off to the Nolans they did yeah. do it together I just yeah. looked up yeah, yeah. Uh, for being like oh we could go in chronological order and like jump back and forth between these two men's perspective or <laughs> we could n- Nolanize it or I we guess. could yeah so, we could so. mementalize it <laughs> yeah. is what I was going to say but yeah same difference um, so I just think it's so cool that like the way the book is set up would it, it provides such an easy passage to adaptation, and I love that they just made it insane. Um, and the well, climax is different, to. right? Yeah, there are some key changes with... I haven't read the book for the a while. ...what the twists are and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, The book definitely has a more... Um, I don't know what to... Like, it, it feels... I feel like the movie, even though it's a, a period piece, like, something about it feels very modern. The book feels more old in the way that it's written, how people talk, yeah. um, and kind of, like... Uh, just the realism of it feels a little more old school. Um, whereas, yeah, the movie feels almost more like sci-fi in the way some things are, um, the, some things play out. So anyway, but yeah, the changes I think um, work better as a movie. And uh, I just think it's a, it's a fantastic uh, adaptation. I just love what they did with this. So exa- nice. that's one example of just like, completely changing um what's in the book i mean the, the heart of it's the same though. the heart Two of it's the same though that's what's yeah so. and that's what's so impressive when yeah. you see something like that happen yeah you get all those same emotions in both the book and the movie but presented in such a different way so i love that nice awesome thank you uh, my number five full full disclosure is about probably like six months ago i read a very very articulate examination of why this version of this book, which is probably more accurately considered a novella, okay. um, is the best adaptation. Now, at the same time, I already had much love in my heart for this adaptation. 
but all this this long piece is a long piece, and I read all of it because I it, I was just kind of eating it up. Um, uh, it really kind of solidified my my love for this adaptation, which is it could be considered sc- silly, and even in my notes I put scoff all you want. Um, but my number five is a Muppet Christmas Carol. Okay, cool. Um, which I think the spirit of what Dickens was doing is alive and beautiful in the adaptation. There are not a lot of changes, which I know goes a little bit against what I was saying, but you could also look at it as there are tons of changes because they do they Muppetize it's Muppets. it. Muppets. Yeah. <laughs> so. They Muppetize it. Um, and so, yeah, it's Muppets, and there's some added humor that you don't see in the original thing. The music really kind of adds to that. Because that, what Dickens was doing was very much uh, uh, pandering at the risk of sounding like I'm slamming uh, a famous author. Like, I've read a little bit about it. I haven't researched it tons, but he wanted to make money. So he wrote this like very straightforward, I don't want to say obvious, but thematically obvious uh, Christmas fable. And I think what the monkeys, uh, the monkeys, what the <laughs> Muppets do, I love the monkeys, the, the music group. Uh, what the Muppets do is they weirdly kind of set us back from that obviousness. It's all there, but because it's the Muppets, we have a little more fun. It feels a little more light. Um, and Michael Caine never, ever, ever phones in any part of his performance. I, I may have talked about this before when we, when we uh, did Christmas movies a couple years ago, some years ago. But if you isolated him and you took out all the Muppets and you just showed the performance... Besides the fact that his eye line would be looking down, <laughs> I don't think anyone would would uh, take anything away from from what he does. Um, and they don't shy away from the despair. I I truly think that one of the most heart heart wrenching scenes I've ever seen is when they sing "The Love Is Gone." Like, and I mean that sincerely. And again, you can scoff. I, I I'm I'm open to that. Um, but when he sings "The Love Is Gone" with Belle, and he starts crying at the end, and he's singing along with her, like it works on a cinematic level for me, not just on a Muppets level. And I, I mean, I love the Muppets anyway. And and I think Kermit does a great job ca- capturing the spirit of Bob Cratchit. Um, and this isn't meant to be like a charity number five. I think that what, what Jim Henson and his crew did with the Muppet Christmas Carol is kind of astounding in how well I think the movie works and gets across what Dickens was trying to do when you would when you would kind of dismiss it because it's it's more of a like, you know, it's silly and it's Muppets. Obviously, it's puppets. Um, but it, it elevates. And I think for me, that's what ended up kind of putting it into my number five is going like, Oh, you transcended what you probably, you, you could have phoned in a lot of stuff here and you didn't, you wrote some great music with Paul Williams. You got an incredible actor to portray Scrooge and you did not sell short those emotional moments. So I really, I really think it works. That's my number five. Nice. And I'll go to my number four like we do. So we'll, we'll serpentine it like we do. My number four is really obvious, uh, and, and, and that's the only thing I, I'm sad about here is you, you're going to get a lot of what you would expect from Chad Durham. Um, but it is what it is. Uh, my number four is Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, and uh, I kept off A Little Princess, and it was basically the, the back and forth between A Little Princess and this. And what ultimately put Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban at my number four is what I felt were the lackluster adaptations of one and two. Um, Alfonso Cuaron, Cuaron is a magician. Um, the, there's streamlining of the plot, which I love, that he abandoned Chris Columbus's I'm going to put every single thing on screen. Um, they, the casting is incredible. I mean, Gary Oldman as Sirius is an all-time performance for me. Um, 
the concluding shot, the way he moves um, where Harry gets his new broom and puts it at the very end to give you this great moment of joy and uh, ecstaticness on Harry's face as the final like freeze, uh, freeze frame, <laughs> which is cheesy, right? And because I, I, uh, I see you're laughing and you're laughing, I think kind of like admits the it's cheesiness. like the one thing I don't like about that, movie. and that's fine. I, and I like it. I will not. Mm-hmm. I will not change my opinion just because <laughs> I can see in your face that you thought it was cheesy. I love that he puts that at the end and just lets it be joyous at the end. You know, uh, because the movie takes the turn for the dark, not quite the turn that Goblet of Fire takes. There's a little bit more darkness there, yeah. um, and there's a there's a haunting element to a lot of the lighting in it. Um, I even right now I'm thinking about when he cuts to the the, the axe guy, uh, the executioner sharpening the axe. It's such an incredible cut. I mean, Alfonso Cuarón is so cinematic that it's such a stark jump from two to three, and it just becomes this cinematic masterpiece versus these books books on film that we had before. Um, the opening the opening sequence, all of it, all the way from starting the start of the movie to the night bus is it's brilliant and it's funny and it's exciting and it's weird in yeah. all the right ways. And it, it it adapts it adapts what JK Rowling did. But if I may say, I feel like it improves upon what JK sure. Rowling did in a way that you don't often see. You were talking about the prestige, I think you could see it there too. Um, but like when Aunt Marge goes up and the music that's playing and then the camera stays and backs up as Harry goes and picks up his stuff and then the night bus is just, it's this like, on the scene is on speed, you know, it's going so fast and the one dude's just kind of sitting there and then you have Gary Oldman kind of anchoring this, this performance and a lot of the stuff, it speeds up and you would think like, oh no, people are going to feel like it's too fast but like the pacing always seems exactly oh, right. It's, mm-hmm. it's really well done. Um, and even, I know a lot of people don't like Michael Gambon as Dumbledore, Dumbledore because of the way that he changes, like he, he's a little more like confrontational, mm-hmm. uh, to borrow something we were talking about earlier, but I think he works perfectly in number three. Like there's oh, this, yeah. there's this, just this incredible vibe to what he does. Um, yeah. After a, a little princess and to a much lesser degree, great expectations. And of course, children of men. I mean, Alfonso Cuaron, he should just adapt every mm. novel. You know what I mean? Because he's just going to bring a cinematic spirit to it. That's my number four. Love it. Yeah. Okay. Um, my number four, I've mentioned, I think, various times on the podcast before. It is 1984. Oh, um, yeah. And and I truly wanted to get it before this. Oh, really? Because I still haven't seen the movie. Okay. I didn't, though. So I've only read the book, which I absolutely adore. And I know Deacon shot the movie. So I'm, uh, yes, I'm, excited, Deacon to hear, shoot the I'm movie. excited to hear some of your thoughts about yeah the the uh the adaptation um i mean it it just uh 1984 you spend so much of the book with uh winston's inner monologue that um in some ways i think it could feel like nearly unadaptable um especially with uh some longer sections towards the end of the book where (laughs) you just have people talking and then and talking, reading talking, that, talking. that like textbook too. And then there's uh, the textbook, yeah. um, which That's the movie though. barely bothers with at all. But... As, as it shouldn't. Right, exactly, exactly. So um, I just think uh, Michael Radford's version of 1984 makes just great calls on what to include and what not to. Um, and I, I teach 1984 in English 11, and we, we watch 
a manually edited version of the movie after um, by me, uh, which is really stressful, but it's worth it just for uh, them to see uh, how it's adapted. Because even when you have those longer sections where um, Winston's just being talked to for a long time towards the end of the book, I look around and all these uh, juniors in high school, like their attention is wrapped on the screen while this like 10, it's like 10 or 15 minutes, uh, almost basically a monologue mixed with some torture. Um, and, uh, and, Hashtag 1984. Yeah, exactly. And they're just watching and they're into it. Um, and anyway, the movie overall though is just, uh, as a movie, um, being from the 80s, it just like it felt feels a little ahead of its time to me. Uh, it feels like this kind of like modern indie movie in a way. Um, it the sets are great, the color palette that's used, and with Deacon cinematography is awesome. It's uh, early Deacons too, early ish. Oh, yeah, early ish. Um, really uh, captures the bleakness of the novel, but uh, also contrasting with some scenes that are super bright and colorful to portray certain uh, thoughts and emotions and things like that. Um, John. John Hurt, I think it is. Yeah, I think so. Um, is great uh, as Winston. Uh, he was just in something else. Oh, we just watched Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Oh, did you? Nice. <laughs> Not really, but and it was okay. But John Hurt was in it, so. Um, I think I probably talked most about this movie for our score uh, podcast because the music, I love the music in it. Um, and it's like totally underrated. I've never heard anyone talk about it. Talk about the music in person or online or whatever. Um, but it's just, it fits so fits well with like what you'd exp- uh it's just like a cool vision of the book basically is what That's the movie awesome. is which an adaptation should be as we've been talking about where it's like oh you know maybe I, I wouldn't have pictured that kind of music going with that scene but i see what you're doing and i totally vibe with it nice. uh stuff like that throughout so i love just it. i i gotta get i gotta get it um it's on amazon prime does I think. it does it end for free yeah uh, i think so at least it was i uh, mean we had prime so a few months ago yeah nice i didn't even know that i would have watched it if i had known that. <laughs> actually because I was going to have my my wife get it from the library. Um, does it end with him? I mean, I know this is a spoiler I mean, or whatever. But for like a real Does he book. say like he loves Big Brother? Is that like the final? I mean, I guess I guess it's a spoiler for the movie. And that's the only thing. I don't want you to ruin it if you feel like I should experience what, however it ends. Um, it's, it's a little bit the uh, exact wording. Okay, sure, sure, different, sure. Um, sure. In, in an interesting way. So I won't spoil it. Nice, nice. Awesome. Yeah, mm-hmm. you, you definitely made me bump up to, you know, making sure I, I get it. Awesome. Do you want to hit your number three? Oh, yes. As we, uh, as we as, serpentine yes, our way to number one. Yeah, my number three. This is fun because I, do, I don't know if you've read the book or not. Probably not. My number three is True Grit. Oh, yeah, I have read the book. Okay. Yeah. Um, awesome. And so, I know I didn't mention it, but my son was, he likes to try to guess when he knows we're doing a a list and uh-huh. so he was just pulling from lists and being like this 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 um and i was like no and then he said true grit and i was like no but it's a really good adaptation yeah i it's so good. don't love either one to the extent that they ended up on this list but it's more about my preference i, I don't have big problems with either one okay clinton portis right wrote the book uh charles portis yeah charles portis thank mm-hmm. you i don't know what clinton portis is um, made that up. I don't. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, an interesting book. It is. Um, it's really fun. It's pretty straightforward, you know. Um, but uh, I, I really enjoy it. I, I read it after having seen the movie. Um, as did I. Uh, but, uh, great. And I, when True Grits come up on the podcast before, I probably mentioned I actually haven't seen the, the John, uh, Wayne, John version. Wayne version. My mom loves it, so I've seen it a couple times. Okay. But it was years ago. I would guess though. Here's my I think question. We own kind it. of. I've seen like clips from it. I think. Yeah. Um, 
do you feel like it captures the humor? No, it's a, it's a lot more straightforward. It's like a John Wayne Western. Right. And a lot of the stuff is the same. Like, the plot is the same. But, you know, the Coens, they have a very distinct voice that vibes a little more with Portis's Exactly, novel, yes. Yeah. That's what surprised me most when I read the book was... I was like, that movie's like pretty, like pretty funny as a Western, you know? Yeah. Um, and I was like, surely... Matt Damon's funny. Uh, One of his funniest performances, I think. Yeah, totally. Um, so I was like, surely the book's more straightforward, but the book is pretty funny um, for its time, you know, and for yeah. the voice and the uh, genre that it's existing within. So I just love how the movie really captures that tone and then they coenize it. Um, we keep saying eyes everything today. Yeah, uh, we but, do. <laughs> but, uh, We're teachers. We make up words. But it jives, like you said. Like it, it's The tone works so well for them to be like, I see what you're doing here in the book and it's funny and we're going to highlight it and uh, you know make it even more. Um, and of course, another one shot by Deacons. Uh, it's gorgeous. And uh, it's so we well cast We love you, Roger. Well. <laughs> yeah, um, incredible so, performances. All the way down to Haley Steinfeld. Exactly. Haley Steinfeld's a perfect Maddie. Um, She's never been better in anything. I hope one yeah, day she will be. that's true. She hasn't done anything. No offense, Haley Steinfeld. Yeah. You seem cool. She, yeah. Uh, the change, one change I love is The Age of Rooster. I thought that was a brilliant choice to bring in. Uh, Jeff Bridges and have Rooster. In, in the, the book, he's like 40. Because I don't remember. Um, he's like 40, yeah. I th- even like 38, I think she says. So um, I think having him be, you know, at least a couple decades older than that uh, works way better for the character. Because like in the book, you'd think he is anyway because the way he talks is very like jaded and... Uh, and he's you cantankerous. Know, like, like we always mm-hmm. say cantankerous old people. Yeah. And he really embodies that. Exactly. So I thought that was a brilliant change they made. Um, and they just do such a good job of uh, moving from event to event, taking things out when necessary, working things in from one scene in the book to a different scene in the movie to get the same info across like any swift and good adaptation should. So I love it. Nice. That's awesome. And both of those, like I just, I've seen True Grit the movie once. Really? Yeah. Why do I? And I've read the book once. Okay. Uh, and I read a lot of books once and I'm, I mentioned before, I think even on the podcast, like I just forget them. I'm terrible about that. I can read a book again, like a year later and be like, Oh, I forgot about that. Right. Um, so true grit's definitely one I should read again. Nice. Um, yeah, my number three is, is a staple of, um, English classrooms. Um, and, uh, I think that this is interesting to bring up and, and some of you may will already, well, eventually when I say the name, you'll definitely know. Um, it's an adaptation, but AFI, the American Film Institute, did a list, uh, 100 years, 100 heroes and villains, and they counted down the top 50 heroes, movie heroes, and the top 50 movie villains of all time. And I thought it was interesting that at the top of the villain list was an adapted villain, which I haven't read this book. This is not my number three, but Hannibal Lecter, which is, you know, Silence of the Lambs was adapted from a Thomas Harris novel. And then my number three movie had the number one movie hero of all time, uh, which is Atticus Finch, uh, portrayed by Gregory Peck. And I think, I think this is kind of, it's interesting to say just because I do think that the writing is good. They don't change a ton. Part of the reason that my number three and my number one are where they are is an, an actor's part of the adaptation, which I know I didn't mention in our reasons, but it's obviously a big part. And Gregory Peck embodies what almost should have been an unplayable character. And all I mean by that is he's like this shining beacon to the point that 
he, I mean, he's pretty perfect. And you could argue that the character of Atticus Finch until Ghost at a Watchman came out um, many years later, that he's almost like too perfect, right? There aren't a lot of flaws, but Gregory Peck portrays him about as perfectly as he can be portrayed to the point that he's number one on the list of movie heroes of all time. And the list came out in like, I don't know, 2007 or eight or something. So it's been some years. Um, Harper Lee created some, uh, you know, a book about racial tension, about race, about our justice system and how it treats black men and women, particularly black men, which obviously we, we know is still relevant even today. Uh, the novel is taught, you know, across the nation because it asks students to confront biases and prejudice and understand the way that the world worked in, uh, you know, the wrong ways back in the day. Um, and yeah, I think there's some narration. Uh, I, I actually can't remember, but I think Scout does a little bit of narration. But ultimately, this ascended all the way to number three on my list because I think Gregory Peck brought Atticus Finch off the page so perfectly. Won an Oscar for it, if I remember correctly. And if I'm wrong, I apologize, but I think he did. Um, I'll look it up while Jake's, when Jake's talking about his number two in a few minutes. Um, yeah, I, I don't have a lot else to say, but it was a seminal book for me as a person in high school. It was a seminal book for me when I first started teaching ninth grade English some years ago when I first became a teacher and asking these students to confront some of those biases in the essays that they wrote. Um, and when I showed the movie, it just always felt like a perfectly calibrated version mm. of what Harper Lee had written. So not a lot of change this time for me, more so about this anchoring performance where Gregory Peck makes this perfect person feel real and makes him feel like somebody you know you you wish you knew and that you wish and that you wish you were, which is what Harper Lee does so well in writing Atticus Finch. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um my number two as I also pull up Gregory Peck on my computer over here. My number two is um, <laughs> is obvious. Uh, these top two are, uh, you know, Chad Durham ones. Uh, it says Gregory Peck won one Oscar, and he won it for, yeah, for To Kill Mockingbird. Um, this one is actually one of the most faithful adaptations I've ever seen, other than completely changing the climax. And for me, it, and I know To Kill a Mockingbird, I said was faithful too. Um, but th in this case, since it's a graphic novel, they had panels too, right? They had what these characters look like. Oh, man. And, um, and what, I just didn't I, consider it. <laughs> and they had what, they had what the, the characters look like. And Edgar Wright, in the adaptation of Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, like picked actors and actresses who matched what they looked like in the thing. Um, they focused on keeping the weirdness of Scott Pilgrim versus the world intact. Like it wasn't about, let's make sure that this is, sorry. It wasn't about, let's make sure that this is um, palatable. It was about, let's make sure that we're being true to what Brian Lee O'Malley wrote on the page. Um, I saw Scott Pilgrim versus the world before I read the novels and I had given Edgar Wright all the credit for the funny lines. I had given him all the credit for the quirky t tone, for the like turns that it takes, for the video game references. I'd given Ed Wright all the credit because um, at first I didn't even know it was an adaptation when I saw the trailers. And then when I did, I was still like, well, Edgar Wright, I think he's really funny. Um, you know, he, he, this quirky sensibility. And it basically all comes from the books. Um, but uh, the, the movie came out before 
the sixth graphic novel I think had um, okay. been published. And the I think Brian Lee O'Malley ended up either going a different way with the climax or Edgar Wright said we're gonna do it this other way. Um, but it works really, really well. If you read if you read the graphic novels, which are incredible by the way, shout out Brian Lee O'Malley. They're super funny. Um, so is Seconds. You should go read that too. Uh, by Brian Lee O'Malley. Um, there's like a uh, like a, a really weird kind of like subspace highway and like uh, clones. It's not clones. It's like robots or something. I can't remember at the end. It gets really weird. Okay. But Edgar Wright, he changed the end. And yeah, it's more palatable cinematically. But he doesn't sacrifice anything else that comes before it, if that makes sense. There's no sense of like, oh, you're dumbing down Scott Pilgrim for an audience. Like, oh, no, no, no. When I show parts of it in my adaptation class, the kids who have never heard of it are like, that's one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. <laughs> and I love that Edgar Wright was like, yeah, that's what we're doing here. Brian Lee O'Malley created this quirky, clever, hilarious thing. We're not going to change it. Yeah, we're going to put it on the screen. I mean, they had the book on set. I've talked about this before, I think. In an interview with Edgar Wright, he said, yeah, we had the book and we compare. You can Good. see some of the exact frames, yeah. like literally translated. And so, you know, I talked about changing, but there's enough change um, and enough faithfulness that I just think it was one of the coolest adaptations because Edgar Wright's whole point was like, let's help people see what a great graphic novel was created in this really kind of cool cinematic way. Um, and then Michael Sarah's is probably the only one who doesn't look exactly like what's on the page, but he, he adapts so well the feeling of the character of Scott Pilgrim. That that's my number two. Nice. My number Good two. Pick. I didn't consider. I mean, it's it a graphic, graphic novel. It's this is novel. I know, but it's cheap. I wouldn't sure. have qualified anyway because I haven't read past like the third one. So. Oh I'm yeah, sure. they're good. They're very good. Okay. Your two and your one. My two it's and happening. my one. All right. At least one, possibly slightly unexpected. Uh, my number two is "Call Me by Your Name." Nice. Um, which I only read very recently, so uh, but I've seen the movie a couple times now, uh, <clears throat> and this is probably more than any other one on my list. This one is all about um, essence and tone and feel, uh, translating the story from book to uh, to film. Um, <clears throat> there's just a, the the script is very faithful in terms of dialogue so there's a lot of dialogue in the book uh that i had previously um i guess credited james ivory for but his screenplay is such a good translation of taking those conversations from the book and making them a little more palatable in the movie um if you've seen the movie people out there i know you have of course yeah but, yeah i haven't um, read the book though but people talk kind of pretentiously it's in this very like uh, you know the family is very academic and uh um and so I think a lot of the lines just come across as weird, um, and they're even weirder in the book, but I love the way that it feel, uh, it creates this unique feel um, in both the book and the movie, this uh, summer you know, of conversations about composers and novelists and all these things, um, mixed with the romance, of course, and the passion that comes there. Uh, the uh, book... Um, if you are ever going to read it, I would say it's much more graphic than the movie. Oh, really? Um, yeah. I mean, and the movie, the movie hedges just because it's, I don't know, I guess they want to, you know, sometimes you want to reach a slightly broader audience. Right. Yeah. So like it's there and you, and you know, but they also, there's a lot implied as well. Right. And so less implied in the book for sure. Plus you're getting like thoughts and feelings that are happening during scenes and stuff as well that make it feel more. Uh, graphic, I guess. But anyway, just, just that sense, though, of this six-week summer uh, romance um, that I think could have been interpreted in different ways for the screen. Um, 
this is one where I really like the faithfulness of the tone from the book to the movie. It just, uh, it just feels the same. And I think part of why I like the faithfulness so much here is because it's unique. It just feels really unlike other, a lot of other stories. Um, did the, that I've did seen. the book have that same sense of like lyricality and poetry? Does that make um, sense? That's like I, the movie almost felt like a tone poem to me. Right. Like um, it's, it's like you said, emotion and, and uh-huh. tone and vibe. But I, I, I mean, poetic is such an innocuous word or it's not as, as descriptive as I want it to be. But that's how I feel watching yeah. Call Me By Your Name. Is this poetry? Do you... Do you... Um, I would say that that's, uh, that's some higher praise I'm going to put on the movie. Because the book, um, it is all, it's all narrated from Elio's point of view. That's Timothy Chalamet's character, yeah. who's uh, a 17-year-old boy. And I think you do see some accurate uh, effects of being stuck in a teenage boy's head for uh, in the book sure um whereas the movie's able to present a slightly more objective perspective that sure. i think achieves this more nice. kind of poetic tone so the book does it spends a lot more when you're hearing his thoughts of like um there's a lot more stuff about oliver like ignoring him that goes on for a long time in the book that like barely even happens in the movie because it's got to move faster right um but i do think that's one thing the movie uh improves upon from the book is, is that poetic um rhythm and and tone yeah. that you have but anyway just really uh thoughtful and uh tone is the thing i wanted to get across more than anything up from book to movie is just feels the exact same which i loved nice awesome and number one number right. one right, we'll um, Jay Campton's favorite movie yeah. adaptation of all time as of <laughs> June 2020. It's going to feel anticlimactic because you already said, uh, like everything I would have wanted to say about it, uh, it's Harry Potter. <laughs> oh, yes! Yeah. Uh, no way! It's got to be. I didn't Come expect on. it to be number one, though. That's amazing. I know. Since I... we were already... No, no, no. Nothing but love. Yeah. Nothing but love, even though you think the end is cheesy. I don't care! If I was just <laughs> looking at love for the movie as an adaptation... It, Combined with like how much I've read the book, so like familiarity kind of as a yeah. uh, uh, an element in deciding my ranking me, here. Me too. Like, when I get to my number one okay. in a minute, it's uh, uh, it's it's the book I've read the most. Okay, right. Which which makes it easier to judge an adaptation, right? Yep. Because you're like, oh, I know intimately the details of this story, so I yes. love seeing how you bring it all to the screen. So I am gonna go with Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Love it. I'm so excited. Uh, yeah. I mean, I. We've talked about it pro- probably mostly on the uh, Alfonso episode, but I just love how much his version of the Harry Potter universe rejects the first two. Like you already said, like that's just like yeah. I just wanted him to make them all after that. I, know, I really did. exactly, and I know he never would. And, and I, we I'll got just, Roma. Yeah, and we got other. We got Children of Men, and we got Gravity. So I'm okay with it. Yeah. Uh, but I do, I love that he's like, yeah, we're not doing the whole every single scene from the book <laughs> thing anymore. Um, and when it starts, like Chad said, opening uh, oh my scenes, the sequence is so good. And you're like, what is this weird new kind of version of Harry Potter that I think feels more right? I mean, it's a story about, uh, you know, kids, tweens, I guess, becoming teens as they've found out that they have magical powers. It's a weird thing, right? And, um... I appreciate the whimsical approach that uh, the first two have, but I really love how Alfonso just goes more a little just weird with it. Um, It feels less like it's trying to ease us into this magical world, and it's more just like, 
hey, here it is. Here's a, here's how they live, and here are the the quirks of this uh, society. Um, and of course, the filmmaking's incredible. Even um, without Lubeski, one of one of the yes. movies early on that didn't have Lubeski because he was shooting something else. But mimics him anyway, as we've yeah. talked about. Um, I totally thought it was him for years. Yeah, just because I didn't ever check it like I should have. Mm-hmm. Um, which I love. Yeah, the floaty camera work is just like amazing. So that's my number one. It's just man, the impact he had. Imagine if we got a number three Columbus directed. Like, just I can't. I, I can't go there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to live in that alternate universe, yeah, Jake. Exactly. Um, I was just thinking right now of the like shrunken heads that are yeah. in the night bus, mm-hmm. calling him Urn. You know, I mean Urn. I think is what he's called sometimes in the book too. But I was just thinking about how they stop for the lady. I mean, you were just talking about how it's weird. And he's counting. He's like, one, two, three, four, and a half. And like counting. And then they take off the minute that the lady goes across. Yeah. Oh, man. I think that's what it is. It, it, it adds to the weirdness of the wizarding world by having weird like jokes and writing. Yeah. And like, um, not that he wrote the script, I don't think. I don't right? think um, so. But no, it's Steve Cloves who wrote like all of them. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just, it, it's, it's quirkier and I love that. Yeah, it's amazing. All right. Uh, let's do my number one let's and let's, it. let's get out of here uh, on this night. It's late. So, you know, I gotta, I gotta go to bed. Um, so this was interesting because I had been, uh, teaching about adaptation for a long time. I hadn't done the adaptation class yet, but I'd been teaching adaptation and I had been, uh, pounding into my students for years you should be okay, like stop being so, uh, um, stop being so beholden to these books that you can read the book, you can watch the movie, they can be different things. And then this movie was coming out in 2013, I think. And um, it's, I had read the book uh, many, many times and it is also a staple of English classes. And it was the first and maybe only real test even of all of these, of my theory that it shouldn't matter how much you love the book and it shouldn't matter how faithful the, the movie is. Um, because I, uh, again, of all of these, it's, it was the only book I had read, I don't know, at the time, it's probably more like 10 now, but at the time, five, six, seven times, which I just don't usually read books that often. Um, made by a filmmaker that at the time, I just, you know, adored, trusted, loved, but also wondered, oh, will his style translate to adapting this, you know, one of the greatest American novels of all time? Um, And so I was so heartened when I saw the movie and felt like, because there had already been adaptations of The Great Gatsby before Baz Luhrmann made The Great Gatsby, um, that are just like, they can't, it's a hard novel to capture the essence yeah. of. Um, it, so much of it is driven by Fitzgerald's prose. So much of it is driven by this idea of the excess of the 1920s that it's hard to understand if you're like my age or you're not a student of history or you didn't pay attention in history class like someone like me. And all at the center of it is this kind of sardonic narrator who's funny but most of the times when people capture him in the movies, he's not that funny. There is a version from the 2000, from 2000 with Paul Rudd. The version isn't very good. Paul Rudd is fantastic as Nick. That's not the one I'm talking about, obviously. I'm talking about Baz Luhrmann's version from 2013, I think. I think it's 2013. Should have written it down. Um, it's all good. 
Uh, and then you have this enigmatic Gatsby. And the biggest problem with the Redford version and the version from 2000, there's another other ones I haven't seen, is like Gatsby, like he does not seem like he is in the book. And DiCaprio, I've always had a like a, a less ex energetic relationship with, and I've said that before on the on the pod, on the podcast. Um, but oh my gosh, does he make the most perfect uh, Jay Gatsby? Um, and what Baz Luhrmann did is he he was like this. This is why it's number one, the familiarity, right? And then not being disappointed, being like here it is. But he was like, okay, look, a book and a movie are freaking different things, mm -hmm. okay? And I have all this prose, and it's beautiful prose, and it's on the page, obviously, and he, he uses some of it. I don't think he over-relies. I, I wrote that in, in big, big letters. He does not over-rely on narration. Um, but he understands that, like, a lot of those moments, you have to give the audience an understanding of what it felt like to read that thing. And there's, and I, I think I've even talked about this. I, I've definitely talked about it in my class every single year. I, t I, I teach adaptation now, but there's like, this is the essence of it. Let's just, let me give you the essence of it. And then, and then we'll, we'll be done. Um, there's a scene where um, it says that when Gatsby smiles, his smile feels like it concentrates only on you. It makes you feel like you're the only one in the universe. It makes you feel like you understand you, like you want to be understood, sees you the way you want to be seen. How in the world? Do you put that on the screen? So in the 2000 version, they freeze frame Gatsby smiling and then they, Nick just talks, no, no, right? No, no. And Gatsby's smile, first of all, sucks in the movie. <laughs> like it's like cheesy and weird and you're like, what? And then he's like, it understood you the way you wanted. And it's Paul Rudd reading it and Paul Rudd's narration isn't as good as his performance. It, understand, it understood you the way you want to be understood. You're looking at it like, this does not understand me at all. Baz Luhrmann is like, it's a feeling. Yeah. Baz Luhrmann is like, when he smiled at you, you felt these feelings. How can I cinematically make you feel these feelings? Now, Tobey Maguire does speak some of the lines in The Great Gatsby. But what else he does is he's playing Rhapsody in Blue. Uh, Nick turns around and slow motion turns. Fireworks go off behind him. It's kind of bombastic, but it's exactly it's what... It's yeah, It's Baz Luhrmann, right? It's, it, it, it's what he does, but it's also what you feel in the moment. And then he gets DiCaprio, who smile is pretty dang good, right? And if you've seen the movie, when he smiles, you're like, oh, yeah. And he tips, it's, you've seen it in memes, and he tips the champagne glass. Oh, yeah. uh -huh. And then, while narration is going on, they go back to Tobey Maguire, and you see it in his freaking face. He's going, what a guy. We don't have to stare at the freeze frame of this of this janky smile from the other movie. We get DiCaprio, we get fireworks. It's big, it's bombastic, it's Lerman, right? But then we're back to Tobey Maguire and he's feeling the aura of Gatsby. And that's what I think Baz Luhrmann did so well. The, the music is like one of the biggest things because there's all this excess. And, and, and there's a special feature and I've watched the special feature, I show it in class. Baz Luhrmann is like, no, the 20s, they felt like excess. They felt, I wanted you to understand what jazz felt like when you felt it for the first time. So you're watching these 1920 scenes and you're hearing Jay-Z in the background. And it's not, it doesn't work. I mean, it shouldn't work. It works for me. Because it feels like what they would have felt like. Yeah. Like, oh, you're feeling, what would jazz feel like? It would feel like what rap felt like. It would feel like you seeing Leonardo DiCaprio in 20s stuff with Jay-Z saying, $100 bills in the background. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me, I need a drink.
and then talking too loudly. Also, he uses some of the words and actually puts them on the screen at one point, but not just a couple times. And then they turn into snow, so he gets mm. this kind of cinematic thing. He turns up the volume, okay, on like, you know, when they're zipping through the, the but you get a sense of Gatsby's like untouchableness just by the way that you have that sped up uh, Baz Luhrmann stuff that he does. And then they do make some changes, some small changes, but one of the biggest ones is, is Nick's character is in a sanitarium. And one of the things that the book brings across is, is the way that Nick gets changed by this and then at the end is kind of like, oh no, like he's an observer and he's like, we kind of suck, if that makes sense. But the book actually puts it on Nick. He became an alcoholic basically because of this excess, because of the, the um, destruction of the American dream, if you will. And Baz Luhrmann just, I mean, he does. He hyperizes it, eyes. He, 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 he does the Baz Luhrmann things, but it, it, there's just enough, like, when he does Moulin Rouge, when he does Romeo and Juliet, when he does Strictly Ballroom, there's almost no subtlety. With Gatsby, he knows right when to put the subtlety on, I feel like, um, because, you know, he has such a heightened version of what he does as a filmmaker. But it was it was perfect for Gatsby. He he basically said like in an interview I was reading it on a train and I was like no one's ever really captured this, and he felt like he could. And for me, as an incredible fan of the novel, like he's the only one who could have kept. Once I saw it on screen, I'm like, oh, you're the only one who could have finally captured this, because too many people wanted it to feel like staid and somber and like that's just not what Gatsby is. Even though there you can get that feel from like the melancholy that comes at the end of the novel. That's not what it is, it's about the excess. It's about not caring, it's about big emotions and love. When he shows up and it's raining and he comes inside and there are flowers everywhere, that's about what Gatsby was feeling. Oh man, I love, I love what he did. And I think that like it's the perfect example of you read the novel and you get the great American novel, you watch the movie and you get the themes perfectly personified and you get the actors understanding who these characters are. And, and I mean, it starts with DiCaprio. He's, he's so good in that. It's one of my favorite performances of his, but it's because I have that great love for mm. the book. And I feel like, I mean, like I remember when he like comes on screen, I was like, oh my gosh, like you finally understand what Fitzgerald wrote. Like Redford didn't, no offense, I think he's great. Uh, random dude who sucks <laughs> in the 2000 mm -hmm. version. I mean, they had no idea. And yeah. DiCaprio really understood the, the, the essence of what Gatsby was supposed to be. Uh, Sorry for going off. You're selling me on rewatching it. I haven't seen it since it came out. So Did, I just don't didn't love it? it that well. yeah, no, no, you're fine. Just don't, don't remember it that well. Yeah. Probably didn't appreciate the book as much. So Yeah, and I mean, I'm a huge fan of the book. Mm -hmm. And that's what ultimately elevated to number one. You then, talked about I mean, familiarity. Didn't appreciate the book as much. Yeah, yeah, and then being able to see it and be like, oh, you understand the book like I understand oh, the yeah. book. That's what really like gave me that, that synergy of of really feeling like it was a fantastic adaptation. I, I think a lot, I, I think it, it has an okay reputation, but yeah. I think what most people undersell is, you know, his desire to be like, no one's gotten this right, let's do it right this time. But through the Baz Luhrmann lens, yeah. it's, I, I really think you it works. You can do like a video essay on this. I feel like, I think it had like pretty mixed reception. Yeah, no I, one hated it, but very few loved it. And I feel like people, I don't remember exactly, but I feel like people probably said it's like totally weird, doesn't yeah. quite work, but like the way you explain it, 
I don't Dude, know how it could be anything that else. Scene, like, I used that scene, and that's why I went off and had to talk about the scene. And, and, and you know, this is the teacher in me coming out, but that scene, that's how I sell them, like, this is how adaptation works. Yeah. Is you have this thing, you cannot, I, we talk about it. I'm like, what are you picturing for the smile? And most of them are like, I'm not even really picturing anything. Like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> or I'm picturing someone I love. I'm picturing mm -hmm. someone I have a crush on. I'm picturing someone that has a great smile. But Baz Luhrmann's like, but when you read it, what you feel is, whoa. And I got to give you that whoa. And it's not just, I know I can't just give you a smile. That's not going to do it. Let's oversell it for a minute, yeah. but then let's give you Tobey Maguire so you know what he's feeling. That's, you're in Nick's head. And Tobey Maguire's good, by the way. Like he's not, he's, he's up and down, but he understands what Nick was supposed to be. He's kind of like muddles into the situation and then he kind of participates. And then at the end, he's kind of like, whoa, what's going on? Yeah. I haven't read the book in so long, but the things I remember the excess in the parties, yeah. I remember the magnetism yes. of Gatsby. And now I'm trying to picture that done in this like bland, like standard yeah. period. And that's piece what they style. all are. They're all bland standard period. And pieces. I'm just like, you can't. It that doesn't, doesn't work. communicate it at we, all. We read that whole section because it's right before that scene of like what he what Nick says the parties are like because he's like all these people showed up and da 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 ba 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 da 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 and yeah sure like it's words and there's a flow and it's like um, Fitzgerald's great Fitzgerald's in incredible right and so you don't necessarily read it as excess you read it as this beautiful passage. But then when we read it, I'm like, so what are they talking about? Oh, it sounds like they were raging parties. <laughs> and then we watch the 2000 version, and it's like this garden party. Oh and they're like, rah, 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 rah. and then I'm like, okay, now let's watch Baz Luhrmann. And it's like, um, it's it's, like what's the song? Yeah, it's like clubbing. But he, what he wanted to capture was what we would then see. Yeah. So we understand what it felt like. Right. All these people are coming. Everyone's drinking. The music's playing. But if you do it, even as it might have actually looked in the 20s, we're not going to understand right. like the excess. We're mm -hmm. not going to understand the bombasticness of what Gatsby was creating. He's like, everybody came. People who didn't even know him came. Yeah. And so you see it. These cars are speeding in. And it's, for, it's that song, um, um, Little Party Never Killed Nobody. And they're like dancing. <laughs> and there's like a pool, pool. And people are jumping in. And you're like, okay, now I'm getting the excess. Even mm -hmm. if you're filtering it through Baz Luhrmann slash 2013. Yeah. Slash Fergie and Jay-Z. <laughs> and freaking Lana Del Rey, who sings yeah. the incredible love theme, which they slow down at one point and then speed back up. Um, like he, he was like what you talked about. He was like, we need, we need them to understand the tone. We mm -hmm. need them to understand the themes and it can't be bland period piece. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Good stuff. It's fun to read and, and feel like someone captured it, you know, yeah. like in a lot of these that we mentioned and a lot of ones even that we didn't. So, you know, we'd love to hear some of your choices too. And ours, I mean, our top two, I would say we're, we're fairly, I, I don't want to say bland cause that's not true, but like populist stuff and I, and I know that that Gatsby isn't something people are picking up just for fun to read but these are things that you know people have read and seen and are familiar with Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban the great Gatsby um so it shows that we're, we're not you know it's not all about having to find something you know crazy or on the side you know that people don't know about anyway I should have probably not said that last little bit, but um, thanks for listening. Thanks. <laughs> Respond on social media, you know, or don't, but do. Bye. Bye. Bye.